listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Thanks for downloading this episode. UWA is committed to an inclusive society where every life is respected as unique and valuable. Visit our website at pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au to see how you can join with others in the UWA community to create positive change. Welcome to the Pursue Inclusion UWA podcast series. This is your host, Dr. James Kelly. I'm the host of Executives After Hours podcast, as well as the forthcoming book, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. On today's episode, I have the awesome pleasure to speak with Shanta Blumen. How are you, Shanta? I'm fine. Thank you, James. Good to be with you. I was happy to have you. Um, you, know, you have a crazy background, which I love. So could you just quickly give the audience a 10,000 foot or in your parlance, maybe 3,000 meter view of what you, <laughs> of what you do and, and uh, kind of your, your, where you just your like a little bit of a journey of where you've been and, and, and where you're at now? Sure. Well, I grew up in Perth. I have a born to a Belgian father and an American mother and who both immigrated here when I was nine months old and went to UWA, studied history, African history. And when I finished my degree, set off to Africa to explore. And 23 years later, I've just returned to Perth. (laughs) Not quite sure yet what I'm doing here, but I've uh, spent the last, I'd say, two decades working in international development, Um, many of those years working for the United Nations Children's Fund and most recently doing a number of consultancies, but the primary one for the Global Fund for Community Foundations, which is a small organization that helps small to to promote community philanthropy in the developing country, developing countries in the global south. So can I ask why, why the initial interest in Africa? Especially back, I mean, I don't know how many years ago you graduated, but, you know, back yeah, then it was... Yeah, it was a while. <laughs> I, didn't, um, well, I, didn't, no, I didn't want to put you in a box there and make, make an age guess. No, no, it's, um, it's interesting. No, so, I mean, I was always interested in social justice issues and, you know, an idealistic young person that wanted to make the world better. And Africa, in a way, was through a professor. When I studied my Bachelor of Arts... Professor Norman Etherington was part of the history department and he was a 19th century African historian and he was an amazing scholar and teacher and taught classes about white supremacy and sights and sounds of empire. I mean, to this day, they're still the most remarkable course I think I ever studied was his history classes and they inspired a lot of curiosity and interest and while I've lived in different parts of the world, I've lived in the US, I've uh, spent time in Southeast Asia and in most recently in China, I suppose I've remained in, consistent in my, um, my knowledge and Africa has been sort of core to my journey. So, yes, yeah, so it was definitely a professor yeah. who had good teaching that inspired me. It could have That's been another awesome. part of the world. That's awesome. But also when you get to Africa, you realize it's an amazing continent. Um, There's huge challenges, but there's also a lot of vitality and enormous resilience. And it has a really rich history, which often people don't quite understand, but it's had a lot of adversity to deal with. So it's a fascinating part of the world. I can imagine. I've actually yet to go to Africa, and I really want to at some point. Can you talk to me a little bit about... The, the children's fund and what's that what is that about because if you know for me one of my one of my weak spots or strengths one of the two is I, I hate 
I mean, I use this word seriously. I hate seeing children that are being hurt. So it takes a special person to actually even be in that space. But can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, so so UNICEF is one of the um, UN agencies, and it's it's most probably got the best mandate out of any UN agency or any global organization. At the centre, um, it's it's guided by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is signed up and ratified by nearly all countries in the world and basically commits countries to put children first and outline certain obligations and responsibilities that states and governments and families and parents all have to the world's children. Obviously, we're far from achieving and fulfilling the convention, but it's it's an organisation that works in 191 countries, and it's a it's as part of the UN. It's a member state organisation. So what does um, that mean? I mean, obviously, well, it means that our board is made up of member states. We answer to the general, you know, the member states of the United Nations. So in countries like Australia, UNICEF is registered as a charity and operates to raise funds for the work it does globally. But where I was working, we were partners primarily of the host government and trying to work with them to make sure that they met their obligations, um, obviously in critical areas like health and education, protection for children, which is a huge issue now in many countries. How do we protect children from violence and abuse, as you spoke about? How like do we protect children slave. in the like digital the whole, age? Like the whole sex um, slave we... industry is a huge issue too for children. I mean, that's a whole other... Well, yeah, yeah, so. no, um, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of threats. Um, children in conflict, children caught up in natural disasters, so um, I was really fortunate in my time with UNICEF because I worked in very diverse settings. I worked, for example, after the tsunami in Banda Aceh. Um, I worked in Liberia during uh, the end of the civil war in 97. Well, it was the first phase of the end of the civil war and then unfortunately the war started again. Um, so I worked with children who had been uh, combatants, which was extremely emotionally... Yeah, can, um, I, can I ask you a question? Because that's what I was... That's what I was kind of getting to is how do you disconnect yourself emotionally? Like I would I would be a mess. Yeah, but but the the thing is I think in some ways whenever you're in situations these very extreme environments one you're often working with extremely inspirational people who give you faith and encouragement and many times they're locals it's not the the foreigner flying in that is the real hero so you're meeting and interacting with really amazing people who I, I you're you're the lucky one you can always be evacuated you can always leave but the real testimony goes to those that live and have to stay in those contexts and survive and move on and I'm always regenerated in a way by seeing how people survive that's how really they powerful that's really from powerful horror. yeah yeah so so i think it's i think no matter how desperate the situation can appear i've always been heartened and and remained optimistic because of those sort of local heroes and and survivors of things that you can't imagine and, and so yeah right and, and to be to be fair maybe i should but i don't know if i want to and i feel like that's probably half half of or, or all of the issue in terms of taking care of some of these horrific issues around the world is that it's easier to put my head in the sand than it is to to actually 
pick it up and look around. Yeah, and I think actually, I mean, it's coming back to, you know, such a beautiful place like Perth and Western Australia where we, you know, we really don't have that much to worry about. It does sometimes feel that how do you challenge people to think beyond their immediate circumstance and empathise with people that are far away and they don't think they have much in common with. It's it's a challenge, and I think that's a global challenge as we have a world that's more increasingly divided by inequality. You know, how do we create channels to communicate that build empathy and don't alienate and don't create fear? And half the time we create fear on assumptions that aren't really based on much except it's different. So, so I guess that leads me to a question because... You know, you, you and, I, and I love that, by the way, I say that a lot. When you think about what's going on in the world and you've lived in all these countries, you know, you probably read the headlines either online or at the local paper and and you hear all this negative language and negative conversations and, and just berating the opposite side of whatever that opposite side is. So does it ever get you to think, like, do people actually want inclusion? Like, do you think people want inclusion? Um. Yes, because... I mean, whether, well, they want it, I think it's what makes humanity good. Um, It's what keeps us learning and growing and developing. Otherwise, we stagnate. Yeah, but you're talking about yourself, right? But I think, I'm thinking of just Africa in general and how tribal it is and how so many countries, it's, it's for or against whatever side that is. And that discord that they create helps fuel their power. So then it always leads to the question, like, do they really want inclusion? Yeah, no, I I think it's I think it depends on where and how and often um, you know politics and political leadership wherever it is in the world at the moment is very good at you know manipulating and stirring up people's fears of the other. Um, I think most people, um, you know, when people live together and work together and eat together and share a laugh then you don't, you know, you're reminded that you have more in common than you don't. Um, You know, I worked in the UN, which, you know, has, you know, many different challenges. But one of the greatest things about the UN is that you work with, you know, people from all over the world every day. And, you know, you learn to to achieve the same goals, to work together together. you know, it's it's an amazing melting pot of people with extremely different backgrounds and experiences, but you come together based on the common premise that you're, you know, you believe in the fundamentals of a multicultural international perspective and you respect each other for that and then you navigate from there. So I, I think it's about exposure. I think people need to be willing to take risks and... Um, you know, and when you do, you're often, you go, wow, that was really amazing. I learned something or I didn't have to be afraid of that because so there's nothing to be afraid of. So, Shonta, I guess that kind of leads me to another thought in terms of this whole entire thing. You know, the, the path you're going down to, going down right now as we're having this conversation, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so do, do what is the outcome if we have a society that is thinking about inclusion. So what do you think the outcome is societal around this concept if we all start partaking in it and really learning about something other than ourselves? Well, you know, I 
obviously, I don't know if <laughs> there is a utopia that exists, but I think the world would be a little bit more. <laughs> there peaceful. is. Don't tell me there's not. <laughs> well, it's getting a bit, but but I mean, it's it's um. Sorry, can you hear, James? Sorry. Um, no, I think you know I have an eleven-year-old son whose father's um, Zimbabwean, and he's grown up. Most probably, you know, he's moved from born in Thailand, lived in Africa, lived in China, now in Perth. I mean, he is my litmus test of what it means. I mean, I feel like I put a lot of energy in wanting to expose him um, to diversity. Um, and he himself has so many different parts of himself in terms of identity. And I think it makes him, you know, it builds for... Um, you know, you can empathize with different mm -hmm. parts mm -hmm. and different people. And um, I think that's really important because, you know, as I said in the pre-call, I've lived in four countries now and I think it has a direct impact. You know, it's funny. I actually think it has an inverse impact when I go back to the States, though. And I think it actually makes it harder for me not to depress you a little bit after moving back to birth after a big break. But I, I find it really difficult to relate to people who maybe I just never found my tribe, but to, to relate to people who who haven't had that experience. They're not bad people, but it's tough for no. me to have these conversations about the world when their zip code is all they know. And, yeah, no, you I know, agree with you. Yeah. And and it's and and you don't want to you you don't want to judge people because everyone you know it's not like everyone wants to travel mm -hmm. the world or yeah. go out. Everyone I, has their path. But I, but I think the fact is that whether we like it or not, we live in a globalized world. We live in a world where we're digitally connected and we're connected through the environment and the air we breathe and all those common you know those obvious things, and we can't just. Um, we can't we don't we don't have the i don't think we have the luxury anymore of building walls based on very narrow stereotypes like color of the race other. creed religion yeah, yeah yeah they're just really too simple um and they're you know they feel very passe um and i'm really hopeful that the next generation i mean you know, talking about my son, but when, I mean, we spend a lot of time watching um, television, sometimes we watch television together, but we watch this new series of TV that's coming out, you know, in Modern Family and there's Blackish and there's a new culture, which I really hope will infiltrate the younger generation. So they don't even need to be sort of, you know, that, that it's obvious mm -hmm. that be, you, people be bring different assets and, personality types and cultural diversity but that makes for an interesting experience and also helps us figure out what we're going to do to solve some of our more serious problems well you know i mean this brings me to a huge i think the biggest issue i mean the biggest is probably a, a, a loaded word but i see it here in the middle east and i, I realize that you know as you have children that we create the biases stereotypes, um, descriptions of the other, whatever that is. I remember my, my son came home from kindergarten and the, the child's name he was describing was, you know, an Americanized first name, but an Indian last name. And, but I was like, so, so what we couldn't tell, like, it wasn't totally clear. 
And so we tried to ask him to describe the st- his friend. And he's like, I don't know. He, he looks like me, but he has like darker skin and um, <laughs> brown hair. And, but he didn't like, he didn't categorize his name, just another person. And then you realize that, that you give him the titles and labels of that person. And, and that's what we do as parents is we actually create a lot of the lack of inclusion by creating categories and defining what other people are or are not versus the similarities between the two. It's the differences between. But I, I guess I'm curious why, why this whole concept of diversity and inclusion is so important to you personally. Um, I mean, I think it's obviously personal because I, I grew up as a, a, a child of a migrant. I'm a migrant to Australia. And even though my parents are both, um, my, my dad's Belgian, he has a very strong accent. Um, and, you know, his first cultural experiences um, weren't most probably if the same as if he'd come from Africa or, or Vietnam, but he was white European. But he definitely faced... Um, some challenges because he had a thick accent and he wasn't conventional and he went into the legal profession, which is very conservative and conventional in Australia and Perth at least. And so I think from the very beginning, um, my whole life has been informed by the fact that my parents both were very curious um, travellers and we always lived with diversity in the family. We always had interesting uh, people come to dinner from different places. They We went on adventures when we were younger. Um, I grew up with, you know, heritage divided between America and Belgium and, and Australia. And then now the fact that, um, you know, I have um, a child that is, is, you know, has roots in Africa um, and I have family there, um, I feel very strongly... Um, that I want every one of my family members to feel included. Um, And it is personal. I don't want my son to experience racism. I don't want him to feel different because he doesn't conform um, to some conventional way of doing things. I don't want my nieces and nephews. You know, I have have some Zimbabwean nieces and nephews that are growing up in Sydney. Um, I don't want them to not feel Aussie because they don't. You know, they're not white. Um, And so I think it is very personal at the moment. I I really, and I want to believe coming back to Australia that we've progressed. And I think we have. I mean, it's wonderful even at UWA to see that there's now a lot of African students and there's a lot of more Asian students. I mean, just coming from China, I have huge respect um, for China and what I learned there. And, you know, I feel that we, we just need to start understanding each other better but it's very personal because you know I might be able to conform and fit in to the Perth norm or what we think is norm but my family is much more diverse and I want them to be part and of of feeling like they don't have to think twice about belonging. So taking the idea of this personal core philosophy of inclusion how do you move that to the work you do like do you have any examples of how you try to foster inclusion? In your jobs? Well, I kind of feel like your whole entire job is inclusion, really, but but if you have an example. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, obviously within the UN, um, it was very much, you know, my my most recent work in China was very much about helping the Chinese um, navigate um, 
international development, especially with their um, increasing role in Africa and how they better understand cultural differences and diversity. And it's quite interesting because the Chinese is obviously, they've been closed for a long, long time and they're, you know, now beginning to travel more and study overseas. And so there's different, obviously, um, you know, segments of the population that have more exposure, but there's still a lot of work, um, for example, to be done um, to get China to understand how different cultures operate um, and how things are different than they are in China um, without falling into the stereotypes of racism or other challenges. Um, so so that, was, that was the most recent sort of extreme example in a way, how do you, you know, where you can influence social norms and public thinking. Um, now I'm working in the philanthropy space we're obviously trying to build inclusive communities. So the focus is to try and get communities to control and have power of their own development initiatives. And the model is to um, obviously help by contributing external resources, but doing it in a way where you value the capacity and the existing assets within a community. Um, especially a poor community who might know very well what they need to help them address some of their challenges and don't need, need you as an outsider to dictate. But they may need some of your resources and some of your technical skills, but trying to build a model where they are still in the driving seat. Um, and, and it's interesting because in the community philanthropy space, there's obviously communities can be defined in different things. It could be um, LGBTQ, you know, communities. It could be uh, women self-help groups. It could be youth uh, banks that help to um, support youth activities in, in marginalised communities. So your definition of community can be very, very broad. It's, it sounds like you do, it sounds like your jobs really encompass the definition of creating moments of inclusion. Yes, well, that's ultimately, and and I suppose the 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 logic and the dream is that if we built more inclusive communities, we would be able to mitigate some of the tensions that exist um, by 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 reducing division and finding ways to bring people together in a constructive way. So that leads, I guess, leads me to the final question. And thank you for your time on this. This has been fantastic, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So, I, you know, there's for many years, there was a huge conversation just about diversity. We need a diverse workforce. We need diversity in the world. Diverse, 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 diverse. But the problem with diversity is that just acknowledges that there's still differences, right? Like, we have a quota system. We have this. We have that. So how do we change the conversation from diversity and create moments of conversation about inclusion in the workplace, in society? Well, you see, the thing is, I don't think it, I don't think we should ignore diversity. I think diversity makes life much more interesting. So it's not, inclusion shouldn't have the aim of making us all the same. It's not I mean, an that, either that, or thing, that's what you're saying. It's not an either or. And, and I think one of the things that happens is, Diversity difference can create levels of fear and anxiety because people, it's not familiar. So you need bridges to help people understand the diversity and then they'll accept it or they'll be excited by it or they'll realise it's non-threatening and then 
the togetherness or whatever, how you want to define it, it doesn't become a problem. It doesn't become an issue because you respect that person because they're diverse. Um, you know, it's not about conforming to the same. Um, but, and we have a trend, I think, with globalization that that is a danger that we're all going to shop at the same super mall and, you know, <laughs> buy the same clothes. But um, I think, I think, you know, if we look at language and food and arts and music and all the wonderful things we love um, that show the world's best in terms of diversity, it's exposing people in positive ways um, to what reminds us of our common humanity, but can be expressed in really diverse ways um, and that brings us together, you know, so that we, we celebrate diversity but in a way that doesn't threaten or alienate. And, and that's easier said than done, obviously, because we haven't perfected how to do that. Well, that is, that is a great answer. Shanta Bloman, thank you for your time, energy, and willingness to sit down with me on this UWA Pursue Inclusion Initiative. I really appreciate your, your time. No worries, James. Thanks for having me. It's a great, a great opportunity. Thanks for listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Make the commitment to leave no one behind by taking part in our movement towards an inclusive society. Join an inclusion project or inspire others to act through the great work you are already doing by visiting pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au.